Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is time for Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk. And the last time we were together as a team, as a group, it was Guy Talk Live. That was a lot of fun, oh, gentlemen. Oh, so much fun. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Tom Parrish. You already weighed in on it. We've got uh, the full team here of Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, 007, Justin Jepson, and Dr. Peter Kapsner. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks, Bill. Uh, good to be here, Bill. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, let's jump in. Uh, first of all, I want to let in anyone know with a question, you know where to uh, send it. Text it over to 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. We'll do our very best to answer it. So I'm in the book of Proverbs, and in Proverbs 3.3, 3, it says that we should uh, t- let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. What does it mean to write mercy and truth on the tablet of your heart? I never thought of my heart as a tablet. In uh, the ancient world, when you would write on a tablet, you couldn't erase it. Ah, Once it's there, it's, in, it's indelible. It's there forever. Mm. Where we, of course, have our erase boards and things like that. Not back then, and that's why they used papyri and things like that, but it was, kind, it was a one-way trip. So if it's written on your heart, Bill... It's not going away. Love it. And it stays there forever. I don't need you other guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll risk chiming in anyway. <laughs> no, I think I, I just love that picture of the heart. It, it's sort of the, the steering wheel of somebody's life. It's in ancient world, as Parrish was talking about. That was the the place where your attitudes were. It's where your dispositions were. It's where your values were. It was it was that hidden substance of yourself Um that sometimes you know and sometimes you don't, but it, it drives your language and it drives your behavior. It drives how you interact within the world. And so I think that's such a beautiful invitation within the Christian faith uh, is that y- you can have this written on your heart, uh, that the way you just simply interact with the world with transparency and simplicity is um, is just through the lens of mercy, love, faithfulness, these kinds of things. They just sort of tip out of you. You don't Over time and transformation, you don't have to try quite so hard and grit your teeth through it. It just becomes part of who you are, I think. But that would be my understanding of what it means to become more and more Christ-like as we are disciples. Tom Brock, any thoughts? No, not really. Okay. That's, no, that's so not like you. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, let me throw this out. What does it mean to cry out to the Lord? Is it the volume of our voice? What, is it, what does that mean, cry out to the Lord? I'm asking tough questions today. I love these questions. I had a couple of weeks to think about it. <laughs> are, are we doing it in an excited or anguished voice? What are we doing? How are we doing that? And does God like think if he hears us in deep anguish, he's going to listen harder or what? I've been with a number of non-Christians when they were very close to death. And I've said to them, is there anything you want to say to the Lord? You are, you want to, is there anything that you would like to repent of or whatever? And it's interesting, the closer they are to death, the more... How shall I say it? Gut level confession comes out. In other words, when they cry out, it comes from deep, deep, deep within them. 
which they probably remain hidden and even lied to themselves most of their life. But when we reach a point where we're crying out to the Lord, it's kind of like we reach the end of the road. You know, we're at the cliff, and it's a 1,000 feet down, and if we don't cry out to the Lord, we're not going to make it. So it is that, that gut level. It's not the volume of the voice. It's not the, you know, sound of the voice. It is the depth of the voice, being honest with Jesus about my needs and who I am. Yeah. And I think, too, you read the Old Testament prophets, they got gut-level honest with God when they were disappointed with God. And God could handle it. And I think God would rather have that than us getting mad at God and giving him the silent treatment. I mean, years ago, when I was young, I was dating a young woman who told me that periodically in her apartment, she would just scream at God. Hmm. And I thought that was kind of weird. I still kind of do. But... You know, that's better than getting mad at God and never talking to him. I mean, if you got to choose between the two, <laughs> you know, and so yeah, I think I think God loves it when we communicate with him. And we might as well be honest with him with what we're thinking and feeling because he knows it anyway. So I think it's good to get very gut level honest with God. I think we should do it in a reverent way. Uh, but uh, there you go. Yeah, I was um, reflecting this morning after hearing a story in somebody's life about uh, one of the Beatitudes that I heard taught maybe some 30 years ago, but it really has stuck with me since that time. It was the second Beatitude where it says, blessed are those who mourn or blessed are those who cry out uh, for they will receive comfort. And and the way the pastor talked about that passage was blessed are those who get out uh, into the outside, what's going on on the inside. And so um, so often, I think, understandably, our hearts are just really stirred up or in pain or in sorrow. Uh, life is not easy. We talk about that often on Guy Talk, that it's it, this is not an easy journey that we walk through in a broken world. And so part of the invitation is um, maybe unlike me, who grew up in, in proper Minnesotan Scandinavian culture, where we sort of have to, to stuff everything back down and, and keep a stoic upper lip. And, and I think there's, you know, we can celebrate that to some extent as well. But the imitation of this crying out is a willingness to just simply get out verbally and, and out into the open what's going on that's stirring up your heart. Because when you do that, you find that God meets you in those places and you begin to receive comfort. But, but when you stuff it all inside, um, it's, it's a lot tougher to deal with. Now, I don't always know what to do with friendships along those lines, you know, how much we should be talking back and forth about difficult things in our life with friends, because sometimes it can feel like verbal vomit, right? I don't know what to do with that exactly. But, but clearly, God has invited us to cry out with whatever is going on inside. You know, you made a good point, Peter. I've been looking at all those one another passages in the New Testament. There are at least 52. And they're powerful because we often don't practice them the way we should. And yet, look how often it says, you know, exhort one another. Um, you know, literally, it's like get in one another's face in a loving way. But it's telling the truth. And in that telling the truth, you know, the people I like that tell me the truth are the people that are not going away that no matter what, they're going to be there and they're going to hang in with me. Other people that want to tell me the truth oftentimes want to slip away because all they're there is to put me down. So I've been trying to learn as I walk with the Lord to just be honest and to be loving, but not be afraid that uh, it might hit hard in the beginning. But, boy, I need that often in my life because I can be very blind and, to myself. And I think a good way to cry out to the Lord, I heard this from a, an old pastor many, many years ago, just pick a psalm and read it out loud, and that that can be very therapeutic. There's so many psalms that are pretty gut-wrenching, just help God, you know? <laughs> and, and speaking of crying out to the Lord, 
I've got about eight friends right now that have COVID and have it really, a couple of them, I mean, three of them maybe are, were near death. I don't know if you guys have been experiencing that, but wow, it's like the whole planet needs to cry out to the Lord. And uh, there you go. Mm. All right. Here's another question. Uh, why should we make it our goal to lead a quiet life? First Thessalonians 4.11 uh, does talk about this. It says, I will read the verse, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. I think yeah, I read that no. this morning, Bill. I, yeah, I, it, yeah, or, yeah. Or there's a very similar passage, maybe I read in Timothy, where Paul says to pray for those in in leadership, in charge, kings, etc., that we may lead a quiet and decent life. And so what I pray uh, often it's Tuesday that I'll pray for the persecuted church, but before I pray for the the Christians who are suffering, I pray for the governments of the world, that God will control the governments so that the gospel can spread and not be blocked, and so Christians can live quiet and decent lives before uh, the Father without, without persecution, if that's the Lord's will. And uh, so I think we need to be praying for our governments. Boy, I'll tell you, with the way yeah, I think is a candidate now, if you're, there are certain countries where if you say homosexuality is a sin, you're brought, and then you can be a pastor and brought up in hate speech. I think that's in, in one of the European countries right now. Mm-hmm. So we need to pray for the governments to at least allow us to speak the truth. And uh, Paul says to pray for the government. Yeah. If we could all just pause for a second. My name is Bond, James Bond. <laughs> Guess who just joined us? James. Wow. I love it. Wow, Bill. I, I, don't, deserve, I don't deserve that attention, that type ah, you, of entrance. But, you come when you I want. Second that. I, I, I second that. Everyone, yeah. else starts on, <laughs> <laughs> everyone else starts on time, but you, you come when you please. Well, uh, no, yeah, for, the record, for the record, I was trying to call in and get connected earlier. I was talking with Rosie. Oh, sure. so I don't know what, what happened. So I was ready to go like five minutes before the bottom of the hour. So I'd... It's called espionage. They're out to get you. Yeah. All right. Oh, man, I don't know about you guys. Par- Parrish and Brock, I don't know about you, but, I mean, the guy's already got the hair. He's got the beard. He's got the Bible. He's got the theology, and he's got his own walk-up music. I mean, and he comes and goes as he pleases. How do you get that gig exactly, <laughs> Justin? It's a tough I, one. Yeah, I don't know. It's just uh, – Bill – I mean, it was bestowed upon me by Bill. That's all I can say. I don't I – don't, it's just his gracious gift is all I can <laughs> Yeah. One thing I would say, do we have a, we've got to go to break or no, do we have ahead, a moment? Tom, One thing I'd say Tom about Bush. verse 11 in 1 Thessalonians 4, you know, it says to aspire to a quiet life, to mind your own affairs. If I was going to paraphrase that, I could paraphrase that by saying, don't be a busybody. You know, busybodies are people that are always looking to correct others, always looking to other people's problems, always want to talk about it. No, no, no. You know, mind your own business is, I think, what Paul's saying. Keep focus on the Lord. Help your neighbor. But, you know, don't go around finding every piece of dirt you can or to talk about somebody. I had a, a whole bunch of aunts when I grew up, and I had one, bless her heart, uh, she's with the Lord, Aunt Lila. But Aunt Lila was the biggest busybody I ever met in my life. And you could never tell her anything in the family or neighborhood. She'd tell everybody, including the mayor of the town. So we just learned not to talk to her on those things. 
All right. I'm right. going to take my first break, and I want to invite you to send questions over via text to 877-933-2484. If you also want to do email, you can do that, bill at myfaithradio.com, 877-933-2484. Sky Talker, guys, who talk? Pastors Tom Parrish, Tom Brock, Justin Jepson, and Peter Kapsner is the power panel today. We'll be right back. guys who talk. Let me know what your questions are. We'll do our very best to answer them or put some kind of perspective on them. It's always good to study Scripture in context, the way it was meant to be studied, and these pastors are experts, and I love having them uh, here. 877-933-2484. In Ephesians 4, 22, um, we're talking about putting off your former self. What does it mean to put off the old man? And if we live with a sinful nature... For the rest of our lives, how do we do both? Yeah, I think this is one of the ways that um, Scripture talks about and Paul talks about the the role of sanctification uh, in the life of the believer in terms of, you know, positionally, uh, we're declared righteous when we're justified uh, by our faith and uh, by God's grace. But then practically, um, it takes a a working that out, and really, that's a sense. Sanctification is really becoming who we already are, or um, in the process of being made new. Um, and so, I think that idea of what what Paul is is talking about here is that it takes an intentional um, practice or a cooperation with the Holy Spirit's work in our life uh, to, you know, as he says there, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put off the old self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. So it doesn't automatically happen in our life, but it's, it's a dynamic process because we're, we're invited into not a transaction, but a transformational relationship that goes on for, uh, forever on this side of eternity. So until we, until we meet Jesus and he comes back and makes all things new. I can think of two places where Paul says, uh, one is uh, put to death, therefore, that which is fleshly in you. So our flesh is still around if I have to put it to death. And elsewhere in Romans 8, he says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So I think w- w- we were saved, we're born again, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But I still have this thing called the flesh, which refers to our evil human nature that we inherited from Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve. We have to fight that thing till we die. We don't win every battle, but you got to fight. And Paul, else, I think it's about three times in three separate epistles, Paul says, don't be deceived, you're not going to heaven if you're living in sin. And uh, so, again, it's not that we don't sin, because we do, but when we sin, we repent, and we put to death the deeds of the body by the Holy Spirit and get back up again and move on. I mean, I had, I had a guy recently who thought, you know, am I saved? Because I'm saved now, but I have sinned after conversion. I basically said, join the group. Um, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, First John 1, 9. 
But uh, so there's two things. Don't don't be of the holiness groups, which teach that you can get to the point where you never sin anymore, or you can go for 15 years without sinning. Uh, that's one side of the horse you don't want to fall off on. But the other side is that if you think you can live in impenitent sin and be saved, Paul says, think again. You know, after doing a lot of counseling over the years, I've heard every excuse out of couples, individuals, you could imagine, well, that's just the way I was born, or that's the family I came from, or I'm an introvert, you know, and I, I don't talk, you know, that type of thing. And I think part of the old self is certainly the sinful nature. I mean, that's that's predominant. But how does the sinful nature work itself out? And it usually works it out through who we believe we are or how we perceive ourselves, or we always find an excuse for what we've done. You know, I didn't you know, tell my wife I loved her on her anniversary because she knows I'm an introvert. You know, why does why does she expect that? Part of it is we have to change our behavior. Killing the old self is saying, I'm not going to let my environment, I'm not going to let my background, I'm going to let, let my experiences dictate who I am or how I behave. I'm going to be like Jesus. And I'm going to pattern my life to talk like him, to think like him, to to be like him. And when you do that, there is the power of the Holy Spirit to make that happen. The problem is the old self, you know, I keep wanting to revert back to that. It's comfortable. Yeah, I think what is maybe among the most unfortunate, although understandable, uh, dimensions or, or dilemmas that people end up uh, living in is they ask that question. I mean, we get it all the time, right, guys? Uh, can you lose your salvation? And, and I think it's almost always because somebody's experiencing some sort of uh, enslavement to a specific kind of sin, typically speaking, and and they feel like, gosh, I just keep doing this, and and so maybe I'm going to lose my salvation. And, and Brock, I agree with what you said. Like if we decide to embrace that and shake our fist and and say I'm done with this, become stick, stiff-necked and hard-hearted, well, th- there's there's something that um, I think a great caution around that. But but I think we underestimate how powerful sin is and how weak we are, and uh, and so I think. To the extent that we have a very clear-eyed view about who we are as um, as people that uh, that are going to be subject to sin, <clears throat> and it really is that powerful. I mean, it would have to be that powerful if God became flesh and dwelt among us and had to walk it out into death and descend into hell and come out the other side, breaking free uh, of the bondage of hell. I mean, think about what was required to break the power of sin. It has to be really powerful. And so... Uh, like you guys said, you, you engage in the process then, um, once you decide to become a follower of Jesus, where the Spirit then invades your life, and you begin to be able to walk by and with the Spirit as you're dynamically, through the Spirit, putting death to sin. But that can be a, a long process. I just I take great comfort in the disciples. They said yes to following Jesus, and two or three or four years in, they were still complete disasters on so many different levels. I mean, Peter is denying Jesus after spending three years with him at, at these critical moments, and and that sin of denial uh, humbled him just that much more, and, and he learned humility through that process of failure that then allowed him to be used. So there, there's a lot in all of this, but I just I, I wonder when did we get the message that when we sign up for a life of following Jesus, that everything is going to be perfect out of the shoot. It's actually uh, going to be a process of growth from there, and and God holds us all along the way. I think we can take some comfort in that. One of the neatest things I experienced with a couple: the husband was short-tempered, and uh, the wife said, "Yeah, I, I knew that when I married him. I just didn't think he was going to be this short-tempered. And <laughs> he's driving me nuts. You know, we can't talk about anything. He wants to yell right away." So we did some real counseling, prayer over that. Uh, we didn't look at this particular verse, but other verses along that line. And I kept emphasizing, you know, Bill, you got to simply give yourself over to Jesus and not let your old nature take over. 
And she came in a couple weeks later and she said, you won't believe what happened. We got into a spat over something and he started to yell and then he stopped. And he said, I'm sorry, honey. I sinned against you and against the Lord and I'm not going to do that anymore. And stopped and actually listened. Well, that was exactly what we're talking about here. At what point does the Holy Spirit break in? in the middle? It's usually in the middle of what we're doing and say, hey, that's not what I want. And then we choose whether we're going to behave that way or we're going to behave like Jesus. Yeah, I think this actually, this very similar topic came up in, um, in our, one of the classes I'm teaching right now here at Northwestern. And we were talking about, you know, the, the realm of sanctification and like how and how do you do deal with sin as Christians? And and um, and I think just just real briefly to, to chime in to say here, I think if, if you're struggling, you should be encouraged. In other words, like sanctification is a struggle. You know, there's this idea of uh, the spirituality of, of, of struggle. That's something that even like the, the old Desert Fathers uh, talked a lot about. And even one of the identity markers of the name of the people of God, Israel, is one who struggles with God. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I think that, you know, like Peter said to, uh, you know, we, we've, you know, in terms of we signing up uh, for Christianity or choosing to follow Jesus doesn't mean it's going to be smooth sailing. Uh, it just means that we've been granted a new power where we're actually able to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. But that's going to be a, a daily, ongoing, lifelong um, battle um, and, and a struggle. And so, and it doesn't mean there won't be periods of, you know, uh, where there'll be victory and there's certainly there's maybe besetting sins. Um, but just for those that are maybe listening and just wondering, gosh, this has been really, really hard. Just, just be encouraged because you're in good company. Nice work, gentlemen. All right. Uh, we live in a very difficult, uh, world. Uh, things make us weary. Sin causes uh, difficulty, trials, hardships. Life is difficult for sure. Um, we have victory in Christ, for sure. But how can we as believers not lose heart? Second Corinthians 4.16 talks about that. That's where we need the body of Christ. It comes down to real simple. I, I've walked with Jesus a long time, and I love him dearly. But ultimately, the way Jesus most often speaks to me, apart from the Word, is through you guys or other people like you that are walking with the Lord who will encourage me sometimes challenge me, uh, those kind of things. And it's it's when I get down and, and, and depressed and feel like the Lord isn't speaking that I really have to pay attention to my brothers and sisters in Christ because they can help me see in a new way and uh, step out of that bad situation I'm in. All right. I would like to yeah. continue this question, but I'd like to do it after the break because we're up against a break right now. You are listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Let us know what your questions are, 877 933 2484. I'm so glad to have pastors Tom Brock, Tom Parrish, Justin Jepson, and Peter Kapsner as my uh, power panel today. Let me know what your questions are. Again, that number is 877-933-2484. How about a little violin? It's the afternoon show with 
Welcome back. Guy Talk is happening, and it's happening good. Well, we always love your questions, 877-933-2484. You know, if you don't mind, I'll move on. I thought uh, you handled that last question well, Tom. So thank you once again. Uh, How about this one? The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Okay, so maybe you're praying and you're not feeling the prayers being answered and you're going through a season or a period where there's no answer and you start to think, huh, am I even a righteous man? Well, the answer to that is yes and no. (laughs) I mean, in and of ourselves, we're sinners. In Christ, we're righteous. And there's two kinds of righteousness. There's the imputed righteousness of Christ, but the 33 years of perfect obedience that he lived is put to my account. God counts as righteous because of the righteousness of Christ, and that's true, and that's my salvation. It's called the imputed righteousness of Christ. But then there's something called the imparted righteousness, where he actually starts making me holy and imparting his righteousness uh, to me as I'm getting cleaned up. And, you know, the, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and I think we can say the opposite. The prayer of an unrighteous man doesn't do anything. And that's true. And uh, so um, in and of myself, I'm unrighteous, but hallelujah, I'm not in and of myself. I'm in Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think along with that, um, you know, it's definitely we're not praying according and standing upon our own righteousness, as Tom was, was talking about. But I think that um, the second kind of side of that coin of righteousness of God making me righteous I think sometimes if we're viewing prayer as maybe something that we're trying to affect or change a circumstance. So, you know, the next verse is Elijah was a man with a nature like mm-hmm. ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And so sometimes if we feel like prayer isn't working in terms of here is praying about something that was circumstantial, we, we may not be praying fervently. We may have given up too soon. In large in part, part of that a primary aspect of prayer, I believe, is that God doesn't want to change our circumstances as so much as He wants to change our character. And so sometimes if you're praying about something and it's not changing, maybe consider that this to change the focus of your prayer and to say, God, is there something that you want to do in me? Is there something you're trying to say to me that maybe I haven't been listening or I have been neglecting? Was there an area of disobedience in my life I need to repent of? Is there an area that I've, of unbelief that I need to confess a fresh faith in? Is there something, you know, that perhaps he's calling you to do or to believe. So I think that 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 would maybe be an important distinction to consider, because Elijah certainly prayed and did, you know, and and showed God's power in and through those prayers, right? And we stopped the weathers (laughs) for three and a half years. That'd be great if we could still, you know, the the coming blizzards in this Minnesota winter, but that's probably not God's will for us. (laughs) And, but Elijah also had a lot of things that he needed, that God needed to do in him. And work in and through him, and we see we see those types of prayers of him listening and actually hearing from God. Justin, part of that passage. No, I'm just going to say uh, part of that passage, Justin. It says, "Therefore, confess, confess your sins to each other, and and pray for each other that you may be healed." I, I need to confess, I've been praying fervently uh, for your hair to fall out. I just have to tell you that. <laughs> uh, just, I'm just, I'm just confessing well. now publicly. I realize I must not be the righteous person because it has not worked uh, today. But you got to confess your sin of pride to me. But yeah, if you do that, then <laughs> jealousy and envy. And, uh, it's all there, buddy. It's all there. Yeah, you're you're reading my mail. Right lay, now, I have to tell you. lay it all out, brother. Yep. <laughs> it's interesting in Romans uh, chapter three, verse ten. 
Paul writes, uh, none is righteous, no, not one. And I think sometimes we hear that term righteousness, we think about our good behavior, or am I measuring up, or am I good enough? Uh, And that's never going to be the case, and that's never going to work. The righteousness that I see in Scripture always points back to the Lord himself, to what Jesus has done for us. A righteous man is not somebody who says, look how good I am or how good I've been trying to be. It's someone who says, I'm going to Jesus for the answer. I don't have the answer. I don't have the power. He has the power. And I think if we think in those terms, the burden it takes off of me is that I never know how good or bad I am. I just know I'm both at times. (laughs) And so I turn to Jesus because I know he is always righteous. What he tells me is always the truth. What he always does is for my best interest in the kingdom. And Elijah was a righteous man, and so God answered his prayers. But look how righteous Elijah was. I mean, he ran away, he hid in the cave, he was scared to death of Jezebel. So he's not a perfect man by any any means, but he was a righteous man. And I think even if we have sins and struggles like Elijah, we're still righteous because of Christ, and God still hears our prayers. All right, here's uh, from Psalm 42, verse 8. Yet the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night his song shall be with me, and my prayer unto the God of my life. And the question is, is the word prayer an accurate translation? Would you elaborate on this verse? It seems so rich. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I got it. I don't. Know. I'm sure uh, Tom has has the, his Hebrew Bible pulled up right I now. Do. I, know I do. I actually do. <laughs> <laughs> but I. But I. I think just in you know at the surface level here. I, I mean, it, without digging deeper into maybe the the nuances of that um, of the of the Hebrew word, I, I think a prayer would be a good um, translation in the sense of the overall arcing context of Psalms. In general, I mean, psalms are written prayers that were sung um, to uh, to God, and they were sometimes individual, sometimes meant to be for in community. Um, this particular one um, of the sons of Korah, um, and this idea of this is this is a, a communal lament of God's people of crying out to Him and wanting to be close to Him again. And so, I think um, I think a prayer would be a, a good a good way to talk about it. I think, especially in terms of looking at the content of this psalm in, in, in particular. It's interesting because I did look at the Hebrew, I'm sorry. But looking there, <laughs> yes, prayer is an, is an accurate way to translate it, but also is the word plea. Uh, petition is another one. Now, petition is a form of prayer. Mm-hmm. But pleading with the Lord, you know, that's, that's kind of crying out from your very heart and your soul. So I think the the focus here is that our prayer, our focus is on the Lord of life. He's the one that can take care of these things, and that's the one we turn to. So prayer is a good translation, but I'd also add to that, you know, my notes, I used to write, when I didn't have all the resources I ever used to write, and in, you know, plea and petition, so I have much deeper understanding, and maybe then I can teach and understand that way. Nice job, gentlemen. All right, the New Testament proclaims that believers should fear not. How do I make this my reality when I believe in Jesus, but don't experience this lack of fear as I see the pain, sorrow, and chaos in life? Well, the New Testament also tells us... Go ahead, Tom, Brock. Go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead, Brock. Well, the New Testament tells us to fear not in some circumstances, (laughs) and then other times 
Jesus says, fear, for God can send you to hell. I mean, if you look at uh, Luke chapter 12, uh, Jesus says two things. Fear God, because he can send you to hell. And then he says, don't fear. You're of more value than many sparrows. And those those two uh, commands are within with just a few verses of each other. So I, and I, how do you put that together? Well, as long as I'm fearing God, trusting Christ, I don't need to be afraid. But if I'm not fearing God, not trusting Christ, I should fear God because he can send me to hell. But as long as I'm properly fearing him and trusting him and following Christ, um, I'm of more value than many sparrows. So that it's just, uh, people should read Luke 12. It's rather interesting what it says about fear there. I think it's like the word doubt. You know, there's good doubt and there's bad doubt. Good doubt, it forces you to go look for an answer. Bad doubt is when you just let it roam around in your heart and you don't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Fear is a much the same way as I'm looking at it. What was that movie, Elio uh, Estevez, uh, about a hockey team here, kids in hockey in Minnesota? Mighty Ducks? Mighty, Mighty Ducks. Ducks. Mighty mm-hmm. Ducks. There was a great scene where the, the goalie was afraid of the puck. <laughs> he was afraid of the puck coming at him. So what did they do? They tied him up, and they, they duct-taped him to the, the goal, and then everybody kept shooting at him, and all of a sudden he realized that his equipment protected him. He didn't get hurt, and he became a great goalie. Too often with my fears, I don't go to the Lord and face it. I have a tendency to want to run away or to hide it in my heart and say, boy, I, if I was a better Christian, I wouldn't have that. When fears come along, I think the invitation of Scripture is take it to Jesus immediately, go face it, and let him work in the midst of it. And when I've done that, most of the time, guys, honestly, uh, I've gotten over that particular fear. Mm. Yeah, we've been reading uh, during Advent with our with our kids. It, it's a pretty old-school trilogy, and it's pretty short. I do highly recommend it. It was written by a guy by the name of Calvin Miller. And the trilogy is called The Singer and the Song and the Finale. And the song, the, the the middle part of the story is sort of his take in in um, in more of a fantasy world of what it was like for those early believers to be facing death and and to have sort of this song in their heart as they were facing death. And it's it's pretty tough. It's it's not an easy set of circumstances. The the book is pretty graphic in some of what happens, but it's also faithful to how terrible it would have been for some of those early believers and the fear that undoubtedly would have them part of their journey as they're running through catacombs and as they're facing what they're facing in the, in the Colosseums. But the point that the book continues to return to over and over and over again, and it's been a while since since I've um, sort of wrestled with this or, or wondered about it, is they had a perspective of the life to come. They had the perspective of, of the now and coming kingdom, meaning that their their lives were safe even if they would die. And, and Paul has that in, incredible passage where he says that even though I die, yet I live. Something had taken root in his life <clears throat> that once you stare down the fear of death, once you, you sort of engage in that resurrection life of God, then it's, it gives perspective to everything that's going on around you. It doesn't mean that you're not broken and sad and sorrowful for the painful world, and you don't want to move in um, consistent and, and compassionate ways to the people around you, but, but you can do so in a way that is not fearful, because you know that even if the worst should happen, God still has your back. I think the, the, the last part of this that I was thinking about was back with Julian in Norwich when she was ministering during the, the time of the plague, and when everybody was huddled in their houses or huddled in their huts, I suppose, at that time, and was terrified, understandably, of the plague, that she was the only one who came out of her hut in most of those English villages, and she began to proclaim all through the countryside that all is well, all is well, 
and all manner of things will be well. And, uh, and I think um, that's what we can do even in this time of COVID. And it doesn't mean we're all going to be okay. And Brock, you said, you know, a bunch of people that have it right now, and there's mm-hmm. going to be people that continue to pass from it. But how can you learn to say all is well, even though you may die? I mean, that's really the secret of this, of this life. And that's not easy to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so good. And I, I, uh, you know, I, I think the question said in the New Testament, it talks about not fearing. And, and clearly, it's definitely something that the whole Bible talks about as, as definitely a consistent thread. And, you know, for those that have counted up the amount of times the Bible says, do not fear, I think it amounts to 365 or even 366. You got every day of the year plus, you know, plus a leap year um, where you could look at a verse and have that reminder. But I think the, um, I think a key factor actually goes back to the, one of the realities that that Psalm 42, verse 8 stand, uh, uh, talks about, by the day the Lord commands his steadfast love. And um, I was in Psalm 33 earlier this week, and it says, verse 22, let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. And so I think that, you know, in the, in the New Testament, it says that, that, that the perfect love or the steadfast love of God is what casts out fear. And so I think that the reception of the recognition of the trusting in God's steadfast love produces in us a hope like of what Peter was, was talking about that allows us to be able to see life in the now differently by basically kind of looking, uh, looking backward from the future of what's to come. And we have that hope, as, it, as Hebrews talks about, as an anchor for our soul that's sure and steadfast. And, um, and it doesn't mean that we won't experience sorrow um, and pain and hardship and at times be afraid. But as uh, the Toms are talking about, where do we go with that? And we allow, we bring it into the light of God's steadfast love and it reshapes um, and, and transforms the way that we perceive what, what's happening around us and what's happening inside of us. All right. Here's one quick question before we go to break. Who do the guys think Melchizedek was? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a great question. All right, we'll go to break. When we come back, hopefully yep. one of you clowns will have an answer. <laughs> I thought you'd be jumping on something faster. You're listening to Guide Talk. We'll be right back. doing guy talk or guys who talk and at the last question was about Melchizedek and everyone went quiet on me. Thanks a lot. <laughs> I'm going to I acquiesce to my brothers and let them begin. Uh, uh, I, <laughs> no, I think about Jesus in our high priest, but he's not from the line of Levi where the high priest came from. And so the guy, uh, the I shouldn't say the guy, the author of Hebrews says, well, but Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is this kind of mysterious person, king of Salem, who appeared to Abraham about 2000 BC. But he was, you know, I think Melchizedek was a normal human being, but kind of a mysterious one. Some people say that it, the, it, Melchizedek was the pre incarnate Christ showing up to talk to Abraham. 
it never says that. No. I think it's much better mm-hmm. just to say he's a type. He, uh, he, you know, there are type like like Joseph in some ways was a type of the Christ. Um, Adam was a type of the Christ. Jesus is the opposite of Adam. Adam got us into sin. Jesus got us out of it. So he's a type. Mm-hmm. But to to say that that Melchizedek is Jesus, it just doesn't say that in the Bible. Uh, yeah, I, oh, go ahead, Tom. No, go ahead. I, I well, would acquiesce I, to you. Oh, okay, gosh. Well, I, I, this is just something that I, I was pondering recently, so this is not a fully formed thought, but I'll just I'll throw this out here for you to maybe clean up. But um, if you look at just what the author of Hebrews is doing in general, is he's he's basically he's making the case or the argument that all of um, – uh, all of the establishments of what we see on earth in terms of 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 the, the of, of a prophet of a priest of a king of the, you know all of those were actually patterned after a heavenly reality so the reason why we had a tabernacle or a temple is that it was patterned after the heavenly tabernacle or temple um and then enters Jesus who is he's making the case that Jesus is the better prophet he's the better priest he's the better uh, representation, the final complete representation. He's the better sacrifice. Um, and and so I think in, on one way that even though we don't know exactly who Melchizedek was, there's a sense in which he was the first time that showed up a, a physical, tangible, earthly embodiment of a heavenly reality of a priesthood that was meant to then take shape and form from which the, Le- the Le- Levitical priesthood would is- issue from that, all the, all the way to point to Christ, who would then fulfill that pattern as heaven, as as he, as God become man and came down from heaven, and then and then is now the better priest after the pattern of Melchizedek. So I think it's he's the earthly embodiment of a heavenly pattern that was fulfilled in Jesus. If that makes sense. Okay, I'm ready to wade yeah. into this. Thing. Brilliant. In uh, Luke 24, verse 27, on the road to Emmaus, the risen Jesus is walking with these two guys and. They're upset about the crucifixion, and he's talking to them. Verse 27 says this, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The point of that passage is Jesus was as prolific in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. We don't recognize him as Jesus in all those circumstances, but it was him. Now, was he directly Melchizedek? I don't know. I can't can't give you any passage that ties two together. However... Um, I would imagine in the road to Emmaus, they may have even talked about Melchizedek. Who knows? Hmm. Nice work, gentlemen. All right, let's talk a little bit about uh, parenting. And it doesn't mean you've um, had, it could be a counseling experience you've had, but you've got a rebellious child and you've got to put in some tough love. So how do you how do you balance the need for tough love, the need for, uh, the rule of the house, and also grace. How do you blend those two? I'm looking at Tom yeah, Paris for starters, because you've got kids yeah, who are out of yeah, the house. Please. Yeah, yeah. It's it's not an easy task. However, as I, uh, I think about it, I, I loved uh, Tom Landry with the Dallas Cowboy football team, and he's now with the Lord. But he made a great statement that has stuck with me for a long time. He said, my role as head coach is to get these guys to do things they don't want to do in order to become everything they want to be. And part of the role of parenting in 
you have different personalities in kids, different backgrounds, different issues. But our role is to keep guiding them and to sometimes be in their face and to tell them no at times because I have heard adult after adult after adult say to me, and they're now in their 50s, I never understood what my mom and dad were doing when they told me I couldn't do this or that or told me to be careful when I was dating. But you know what? They were doing the right thing, and I wish I would have listened back then. I wouldn't have had near the problems I had now. So parenting is not an easy task, and I've seen it in counseling. I've got three adult sons myself. I've got grandkids now. It's not easy, but it's one of the greatest works we can do apart from proclaiming the name of Jesus. Yeah, I just, this is such a hard one. You know, it's uh, when you're in the fire of parenting, like you're talking about, uh, Parrish, I think maybe some of it, and this is, there's, there's no one answer to all of this, mm-hmm. but maybe some of it is to be able to distinguish between those things that are really going to have an impact uh, for the next year, two, three, five, ten kinds of years. And the thing that might be bothering you or frustrating to you or, or, or upsetting you, but, but at the end of the day, it doesn't have that long of an impact. I think we start losing credibility in our kids' lives if we're constantly on them about everything. And so I've, I've actually watched my wife recently, Hallie, um, where she was on one of our kids, and, and justifiably so on a few different things. And um, and then he really messed up at one point, and, uh, and she came to him, and instead of coming down on him, she uh, just gave him a free pass and a big hug and said, it's going to be okay. And he, and he just melted. I mean, he just melted right there um, because of the grace being offered. And so it's you don't always offer grace. You don't always uh, always offer tough love. There's there's a bit of wisdom and discernment in that. But I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned, even just watching how well my wife does with this, is trying to identify those things that are going to matter the most and have some combination of conversation about it, of um, sometimes some tough love around it, but but some other things. Be able to say, hey, that's you know that's not great, <laughs> but but not to just come down so hard on them. But it's really tricky. There's not any one way to do this the right way, and, and I think parents are looking to do it the right way, and there's not one right way to do it. Well, and to keep in mind you know, that I, each I, child's personality is different too. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have three sons. Our, our oldest son, uh, and and I tease him now. He's 46. I, I say, you know, your mom and I would be out doing conferences on parenting except the Lord gave us you us first because he really challenged us all along the way. Now, our middle son, Tim, who we just visited, was the most compliant kid you'd ever have to meet. And all I had to do was give him a raise my eyebrow at him and he'd go to his room crying, where my oldest son, a different matter altogether. So it's, it's also understanding the difference in personality, how to approach them, and figuring out what their real language is and going after their language. And, you know, I, I think, too, it just goes so far whether you're right or wrong or a bad or a good parent, if you take the time to to spend time with your kids, that talks louder than just about anything. And, uh, you know, I, I heard of a little girl who said, I hate mommy's phone. And meaning that mom is on our cell phone all the time, like most people in our culture is now. We need to turn that thing off and spend time with our kids. I, I remember I asked a group of about eight people, and these are all Christian people, how many of you had a parent talk to you about sex? I was the only one of the eight, eight adult Christian people who had a parent talk to them about sex. So I think spend time with your kids, talk to them about difficult stuff. You know, you'll know, you, you, we'll, we'll blow it as parents, but, you know, I think the thing that broke down in my relationship with my dad is he was just too busy. And so... Yeah. 
that's kind of what killed me in my relationship. And just if you can take time to be with your kids, that's that's going to speak volumes to them. That's well said, Tom. And, and, you know, when you and I worked together, I always gave you plenty of time. Look how you, you turned did. out. You did, Tom, and I'm still in therapy over it, yeah. Tom. But... What, a, what a way to wreck the hour. Okay. Um, yeah, we were going so good, and now we're out of time. We end on that note. So we'll do our best to make up next week. Uh, so thank you, gentlemen, so much. Another uh, great hour. Thank you for your contributions and your faithfulness to the show. I will look forward to doing this again next week. Thanks, so Bill. So we. Thank Wonderful. you, Bill. Thank you so much, Bill. You bet. Yeah. So glad to have you guys uh, part of the weekly program. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Ace Collins is going to join me. You know, he's written over 100 books. I haven't read 100 books. He's written over 100. We're going to get it in the Christmas spirit. I've booked him twice this month because he is one of my favorite December guests. We're going to talk about the stories behind the great traditions of Christmas. You are going to love this. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.